Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, a candidate for Seattle mayor holds a press conference that goes awry. We're making assumptions that there's guns here or air guns. Not, I, I don't know. I'm making assumptions because I haven't been, I haven't been over there. A Northwest politician is caught on tape and now charged with a crime. Yeah, we're talking about setting up Operation Hall Pass, which I don't know anything about. And if you accuse me of knowing something about it, I'll deny it. Plus, a Texas lawmaker displays a horrendous misunderstanding of basic science. Is there anything that the National Forest Service or BLM can do to uh, change the course of the moon's orbit? And women might soon have to register for the draft. Those stories on the way. But first, well, the summer campaign season is well underway. It may be an off year, but there is a big race on the ballot this fall, and that is the race for Seattle mayor. And we already have a number of candidates, several of them raising a lot of money, others out there doing campaign stops, and some kind of stumbling. Joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich. And before we get into who's succeeding and who's losing, I guess you could say, <laughs> so far in this race, uh, let, let's kind of set the table here because the number one issue for this fall is going to be the homeless crisis in the city of Seattle and mm-hmm. how the mayor and the city council is handling it. That's right. We're close to spending $200 million this year record amount of numbers uh, amount for finding people homes temporary permanently and that's uh, just the city of seattle not just, just not king yeah, county that's know. right i mean it's just an enormous amount of money uh so you it is a substantial amount of money for a city the size of seattle and yet no other city in in the state of washington can come close to handling its own homeless problem it's as big as Seattle's and has the money like Seattle. So for the mayor, mayor's race, it's a monumental issue. Well, and, and add to that, too, I think there's a lot of frustration out there because, as you say, we're spending millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and there's really nothing to show for it. And, I mean, that's anecdotal. I don't have hard data, but you still have tents everywhere you know encampments on city parks and in playgrounds and uh, near city schools so the perception and and so oftentimes in politics perception is reality is that nothing is getting done well the mayor flat out told me to this week that the city of seattle can no way house everybody who's homeless it just can't do that and Money is coming in, she says. It is finding the places to put them. And in the way the Seattle works with in terms of people who are unsheltered, they estimate there are roughly 4,000 people unsheltered in the city of Seattle. That number has stayed that way for years, even though we've been going from 20 million to 40 million and now $200 million being spent on it. We all know that Seattle, people are coming to Seattle. I mean, some people are debating that, but that's a fact that people are coming to Seattle. There are services. Uh, This is where they come to get services because other cities aren't offering it or as compassionate, so to speak, as Seattle. So it's a monumental problem for any mayor that's going to, for someone who's going to become mayor next year. Well, and uh, you and I were both at a press conference the other day in which candidate and former mayor Bruce Harrell, although he was mayor Temporary. for, <laughs> for yeah, nine for months, a, right, uh, right. <laughs> a few days, yeah. uh, that span where we had about 27 mayors in yeah, the span right. of a, a week. Um, <laughs> And and former city council president Bruce Harrell called this press conference in North Seattle. It didn't really go as well as he had planned. What happened? Well, I mean, from the get-go, what he did was he went to Bitter Lake Community Center, and as a backdrop, 
he used a controversial homeless camp at Broadview Thompson School, which uh, K through eight. It's on school district property, but adjacent the city property, which is this Bitter Lake Community Center. So he used that as a backdrop for one. No other candidate has, in my career here has stood in front of a homeless camp, even despite it's a big issue, in front of a, and made some prop, proclamation, whether they're a candidate or even in office. It just hasn't happened. So right away, you're thinking maybe he's going to step into something here. This, this yeah. visual. And, and the way his team set up the shots, he was standing in this field. He was standing at the mic, and behind him were the tents. That's right. So also, then you add in the neighbors who are really upset with both the city of Seattle and the school district about this camp that's growing, and nothing's happened to it. It has not been removed. And even people going in officially to offer services, like getting them out and putting them into hotels or other temporary housing, that hasn't happened either. So there's a there's a boundary issue there with the city of Seattle and the school district. So Harold, Bruce Harold goes out there says that so he's got the neighbors who are upset oh by the way he went into the camp for a couple minutes according to people who were in the camp that told me and talked to one guy named anthony and anthony came out with the with the homeowners and then it went off the rails at that point it, it, it and i recall standing there and and this isn't something that translated too well on the radio because it was more of a visual thing there were two guys that almost came to blows mm-hmm. at this event uh, a, an advocate for the homeless, and then this big guy who is a, a local homeowner nearby. He he was furious. He was looked like he was about to throw punches. Right. Oh, it's a hot issue. <laughs> so least. if you're there as a campaign, if you're trying to make a point, you have this other sideshow going on, and then you're standing in front of a homeless camp, which is debatable even to do that anyway. And then any message that Bruce Harrell said was kind of lost in that to the press because he had the sideshow distraction. But then again, Bruce Harrell, in all honesty, never didn't didn't say anything when he was out there. Other than any new plans, he didn't know. He just said that the city needs to take care of this. As the mayor, he would step in and take care of this. Well, the mayor Durkin has said. She's happy to come in and have city resources come in and take care of this. But this is on school district property. So it's not the mayor's issue not wanting to go in and the current mayor not wanting to go and do something. The school district has asked for, quote, technical assistance from the city. And what does that mean? And that's a great question. And we've asked both sides, what does that mean? And that's providing what does it take to get people in a shelter, whatever. But the school district has zero mechanism to do that. The city of Seattle is structured to do that. They have the mechanisms to do that. But the school district has not asked the city for on the on the ground, boots on the ground help for this. So they, I mean, the simple solution would be say this is school district property. They're trespassing. Call the police and have the trespassers removed. That's the simple solution for really any of these problems it, it's not a, a very compassionate solution people would argue but that is i think where it starts because it, it trespassing is the is the big crime that's being committed here or at least the initial crime well but the school district president on down throughout the school board has been very public to say we don't want to sweep we want people to be housed 
for outreach workers, I guess, assume them because they haven't asked for those outreach workers, people to go in, find places for these people to move to rather than just clear them out with no place to go. Now, at this campaign event that Bruce Harrell held, he gave his speech. He took a few questions from the press, but then, boy, was he accosted by some of the homeowners. Take a listen to this. Well, we're making assumptions that there's guns here or air guns. No, I, I don't know. I'm making assumptions because I haven't been, I haven't been over there. Not a smart move politically. Well, if you're talking to the homeowners, yeah, exactly, who have produced pictures of weapons, of guns, of sabers. I've seen the pictures they've produced. You know, granted, it's coming from them. They've produced pictures of dealing, of drug use. Uh, there's alleged prostitution going on in there. Uh, so for him to say that in front of the homeowners who actually have proven to have some proof, uh, that was one mistake. What have our cameras seen? Because, uh, I mean, you were there a little bit longer with uh, some with one of our Como TV photographers, and, and what did you guys see at the end? Well, we went into the camp, and I want to say that we were the only ones that went into the camp and talked to the campers that day for quite a long time. Uh, and I've been to a lot of homeless camps. As homeless camps go, this is by far one of the cleanest. It was organized. They were not hostile to us, and a lot of camps there are. And they, a lot of them just want, would accept housing. They all said they would accept a hotel. They would like housing. They admitted there's drug and alcohol issues in the camp. I don't think there is one place, one camp in the city where that's not an issue. If they say there isn't any drug and al- alcohol issues, I think they're lying, just from my own experience. But uh, it was very cordial and and responsive. And they were saying they just want to talk with the neighbors and that the neighbors haven't come into the camp and talk with them. So they want to start a dialogue with the neighbors and see what they can do. I think what what's really at issue here and is why it's a kind of a stinky subject in many ways, uh, not just for what Harold stepped in, um, but between the city and the and the and the school board is that there's a pathway of a gate behind the school. Mm-hmm that leads right down to the Bitter Lake Community Center. So the kids go down this path, which is now locked with a gate, to do activities at mm. at a city-owned facility. So they go off of school property to the city property. Yeah, and there's this path. The only way to go from the school property without going entirely around the block, which is a big block, is down this pathway. And that's where the tents are. So parents are upset saying, well, how could you allow... We can't have our kids who used to walk in on their own from the school down to Bitter Lake to go to the after school activity. They can't do that because of this camp and the fear of what goes on and what they'll see there. So so there's a there's a a dual responsibility there by, by both the city and the school district where kids on their own, their safety could be compromised because they have to travel down this camp. So if you look at the if you look at it. Both sides have a, a dog in this fight. They, they need to come up with a solution. And what's happening is there is no solution right now. You, you, the school district hasn't asked the city to come in and do what normally does with all these camps, nor has the, the city gone in on its own. Could even, the city even do that? Because it's well, the not city, city property. But this, I've talked to people at the Parks Department. That area where the camp is, is has been routinely for years 
mowed by the parks department. Even though it's school district property. Because it's because it's kind of like a co-op facility. Mm-hmm. You just the kids know no boundaries. There's a yeah. play field there and then you hit the ball over the fence, it goes on the school district property and that's where the tents are. I mean there's just no there's no physical boundaries there. Mm-hmm. So there's a dual responsibility there, and and now you have the parents complaining about it, raise the issue, and now it's a border dispute, and that's where we sit. And Harold went in there, and and really when he used the camp as a backdrop to talk about his plan, he didn't really talk about his plan. It it went off the rails. the, The one thing he did mention was that he wanted a housing first approach. This is what he had to say about it. A best practice approach is not start arresting people arbitrarily. Uh, Yes, you have laws on the books to enforce, yes, but a housing first approach is getting people treatment first and housing them. That didn't sit well with the homeowners at all. No, not at all. But that is a focus of the city right now is a housing first approach. And that's why even uh, the camps we're talking to uh, there I've been covering just this week, asking Mayor Durkin that same old question, when are these camps going to be cleared? Well, she said this week, it's an issue of where they're going to go. Housing first, even temporary housing, even a hotel housing. Uh, there's not enough of it. So that's the philosophy that the city has accepted. It would be a radical idea for the mayor to come in and not say housing first that we need to clear them out because of public safety reasons or perceived public safety reasons. So uh, for him to say housing first, it wouldn't go over with those homeowners well, but that's the city's approach right now. So for a mayoral candidate to deviate from that, that would be a dramatic move. And I don't see any candidate saying that. Well, and, and based on the people who are in the race so far, uh, Bruce Harrell is the most quote-unquote conservative of the bunch at least the the most well known and and that calling him conservative is a stretch um because left is is just a matter of degrees in this city yeah. especially if you're running for the city of uh, yeah, he's he's probably you know probably the most moderate i'll call it not totally police friendly but he did serve on as the public safety committee chair uh, he's negotiated contracts with the police union. He's been part of that in his history as a city council member. Uh, so he's very familiar with that space. He would be, of all the, I'll call it major candidates running yeah. for mayor. I mean, we have to separate the chaff here. He would be the most middle of the road of anybody. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have Lorena Gonzalez, the president of the council, who is Definitely a member of the far left. Yeah, well, there's farther left. Well, there are. <laughs> there's certainly farther left than her, but but uh, she represents that progressive wing right. of the party. And, well, and, and Harold Bruce Harold would call him a progressive as well. So it's like Not you're talking Seattle standards. Well, I mean, well, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, the, the those two that you just mentioned are the two front runners. Even in a recent poll conducted by one of the candidates, you know, it had Bruce Harrell first, Lorena Gonzalez second. Uh, there was a distance third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh. So you have the top two. And again, in, in August, we're going to go to the primary asking for just the top two, and the top two will go to the primary in uh, the general in November. And right now, the assumption is it's going to be Lorena Gonzalez and Bruce Harrell. But a lot can change between now and then. I mean, the the campaign season's just getting started. The election, the primary election, isn't until, as you say, August. Yeah. Uh, so we have a few months, and who knows what could happen at the you next campaign. You know, what's really on it, if you look at the campaign totals, here's the irony of what's happening here. If you add up all the campaign contributions for the mayor, mm-hmm. that dwarf 
dwarfs how much money is being spent on to recall Shama Sawan, oh, yeah. which has crossed a million dollars yeah. now. Yeah, and so. she just and I just remember seeing a press release that came into my inbox last night. She's lost the support of what was it, something like sixteen or nineteen labor unions that now want her recalled as well. That's how she built. Not to get too off topic, but that's mm-hmm. how she kind of built her brand with was the support of labor. And Lorena Gonzalez has got the key labor endorsement with the Martin Luther King Labor Council already coming out and supporting her. The other thing to think about is is, is we talk about the, the campaign for Seattle mayor and this incident or campaign stop that Bruce Harrell had this past week. This is the first time we've seen elected officials, especially those seeking office, come out in about a year yes. due to COVID. Yes. Even though we're kind of railing on Bruce Harrell for that, I give him kudos for actually doing that. He's, he's certainly, you know, at least the first... It was the first major candidate, major press conference that we've seen. Yeah. He's had, people have had little announcement press conferences. I'm announcing for running. Yeah. And Harold did that in person as well. But we haven't seen council members or mayoral candidates out in public at a full-blown try to press event that other than they're announcing they're running for office. And so I had, I can actually, I, I want to give out credit to a couple people, believe it or not, uh, who actually been showing up more in person, like Andrew Lewis mm-hmm. has been coming out in person. We he, saw him at the unveiling uh, down at uh, yeah, and he he's Occidental been out and about, and he's been more amenable to meeting the press in person. Um, Mayor Durkin is way out ahead of everybody yeah. in terms but of. But she's not seeking re-election. Yeah, so but she's, but but for her to come out and just take the heat because yeah. it's a difference between hiding in a Zoom call from your house, yeah, and going out and facing a a, flan- a phalanx of cameras and microphones and being asked a bunch of questions that are off topic yeah you know what and that's what happens in a press conference and when durkin was out there at at, at this announcement that they had at occidental park for this new pavilion you saw all sorts of protesters around her as well and she knows that they're going to follow her wherever she goes yet she's still out there i think what you see though is the council members haven't been out in public Mm -hmm. i have seen lisa herbold i tried to interview her once at one public event but it uh, it, the timing just didn't work out But all the other council members, uh, I seen uh, Alex Peterson at one event, but then they scoot off. Yeah, you know, they're just now coming out, but they haven't been really out and about throughout the entire George Floyd stuff, throughout the entire uh, defund police about department in an event where the press are there and can immediately have access to them, or it's just a run and grab. You happen to stumble into them yeah. at an event or uh, at a protest over the, the over the summer. So the council members, I believe, are, have to come out from their houses and face the public, not mm-hmm. just the press, but the, the public mm-hmm. in situations where you're at an event, just like you were talking about, where protesters showed up for Mayor Durkin's unveiling of the pavilion down in Occidental Park, uh, where you're, you're going to take some heat. And that what, that's what needs to happen. You think they got a little too comfortable with COVID? I think everybody has. I mean, it's been easier to stay in your house and do everything by Zoom. Uh, call and uh, you know uh, cut it off when you want to you know you're not you're subject to a barrage of questions you can just stop talking and walk out of the room or turn it off you can't really do that in person and you, that's why you see news people chase down politicians they show up for one thing they want to promote usually they show up for something that's very positive mm-hmm. 
but there might be something news of the day that's negative and they don't want to talk about it. So that's why you always see news people seems like they're chasing down a politician asking them <laughs> questions because they're trying to avoid the they're avoiding the news of the day. It makes the press sometimes look bad, but that's how the I won't say the game is played, but that's how it's played. Yeah. You know, to hold people accountable, they may have to answer some questions they're uncomfortable answering. And I think it's time now for the council members to remove the cloak of COVID and start facing their own constituents as well as members of the press and answer the tough questions. Como's Matt Markovich, thank you so much. Okay. Still to come, an Oregon state lawmaker is arraigned on criminal charges. What he's accused of doing and... Is there anything that the National Forest Service or BLM can do to uh, change the course of the moon's orbit? When the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Tell me if this story sounds familiar. An Oregon state lawmaker has been arraigned on charges of official misconduct and criminal trespass. Republican Representative Mike Neerman is accused of helping protesters illegally gain entry to the state capitol. In a video posted on YouTube and first reported by Oregon Public Broadcasting, Neerman can be seen sarcastically coaching people on how to subvert the COVID lockdown at the state capitol building. Yeah, we're talking about setting up Operation Hall Pass, which I don't know anything about, and if you accuse me of knowing something about it, I'll deny it, but there would be some person's cell phone, which might be 9712 But that was just random numbers that I spewed out. That's not anybody's actual cell phone. CNN confirmed that the number he gave out is in fact his own. Nearman goes on to say... If you say, I'm at the west entrance during a session and text to that number there, that somebody might exit that door while you're standing there. A few weeks later, surveillance video at the Oregon State Capitol shows Nearman doing exactly that, leaving the door open just long enough to allow protesters in. Socialist Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant is accused of doing something very similar and is now facing a recall election herself. In Nearman's case, he says he is the victim of mob justice and does not condone violence, but he believes the Constitution mandates that the state capitol remain open. He has been arraigned, but he has not entered a plea. In another case, more evidence that a basic understanding of science is not a prerequisite for holding public office. Here's Congressman Louis Gohmert, Republican of Texas, during a recent committee meeting. I understand from what's been testified to the Forest Service and the BLM, you want very much to uh, work on the issue of climate change. I was uh, uh, informed by the past director of NASA that they have found that the moon's orbit is changing slightly, and so is the Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, we know there's been uh, significant solar flare activity. Um, and so is there anything that the National Forest Service or BLM can do to uh, change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit around the sun, obviously that would have profound effects on our climate. I would have to follow up with you on that one, Mr. Gomert. Yeah. Well, if you figure out a way that you in the uh, Forest Service can make that change, I'd like to know. Yeah. That is a member of Congress suggesting the U.S. Forest Service, of all agencies, change the orbit of either the Earth or the Moon in order to combat climate change. When we come back, the FBI pulls one over on international crime with an app. 
when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Law enforcement around the world, including the FBI here in the U.S., announcing a global takedown of 800 people. They did it by creating their own encrypted communications platform used by criminals to plot their crimes. Joining me now is ABC News' Alex Stone, and uh, it seems like none of this was here in the U.S. Uh, Very little of it uh, was in the U.S. The the planning, the the building of this app was in the U.S., but what the FBI did was pretty ingenious. They decided, you know what, that that if criminals globally are communicating on encrypted, secure messaging apps, then why not just create their own? And, And that's what they ended up going ahead and doing, and the FBI built its own app. They were able to deploy it globally. They they had some U.S. Uh, suspects deploy it who are now charged in the U.S., but pretty much everybody else is outside of the U.S. It got popular in Australia and Croatia and some other countries, and then the FBI and other law enforcement agencies around the world were able to see every single message the criminals were sending to one another. This was the announcement in San Diego. The amount of intelligence that we received was staggering. From seizing drugs, guns, and millions of dollars in multiple currencies to addressing more than 150 threats to life. More than 300 people were arrested in advance of the worldwide takedown. 300 before and then 500 more this week. 800 people. Suzanne Turner there with the FBI in San Diego. So agents in San Diego, they came up with this whole plan. They actually went after and took down other encrypted platforms that criminals were using so that there was a vacuum and the criminals were looking for some other way to uh, talk with encrypted protection. And they found the FBI's app. They didn't know it belonged to the FBI, but Anum and, and the whole time criminal groups had no idea. The FBI was watching 27 million messages, 45 languages uh, were sent. And, and then, Jeff, listen to this, the whole blind copy part of it. The, the criminals were essentially BCCing the FBI on everything they said. The FBI received a copy of each and every message originating outside the United States that crossed our platform similar to a blind copy of an email. And it got pretty complicated in having servers overseas, and if they were uh, U.S. messages uh, created in the U.S., then they had to have the Australians or somebody else look at them so that it didn't get into having a warrant issue in the U.S. But this was a very creative way that the FBI came up with watching what criminals were doing globally, just creating their own app. What were some of the big operations they were able to take down as a result? Well, there were uh, quite a few of them, and, and many of them were in Australia and in a couple of other countries, but uh, they uh, caught groups that were shipping thousands of kilos of cocaine globally, concealing drugs in tuna cans, in fish, in boxes of bananas, in uh, hollowed out pineapples. And uh, there were quite a few. It went all the way to murder. And in fact, this is the uh, head of Australian federal police who spoke in San Diego saying this tool was invaluable. Police in near real time accessed messages sent between the criminal networks on that platform a platform they believed was completely secure. The messages were uncensored. Uncensored in in what they were saying, who they were going after, who they were communicating with, and they let this grow for a couple of years. They would jump in if it was something life-threatening, but otherwise, if it was drug running, gun running, 
to just let more people come into it and let the the platform grow. And that's how they were able to get to 800 suspects and moving to, to arrest them is they let this thing balloon and got to a point where they said, OK, now we can move in and take it down. And that kind of brings me to my next question. Why unveil the sources and methods now instead of continuing to use it? Well, a couple of things. Number one is yeah, they got to a point where they thought, OK, now we got to move in. And it was going to be pretty clear with this many suspects that it went back to this app. So they knew that their cover was blown and it would be in criminal complaints and everything else. So they knew that they uh, that it was going to be linked back to this. But it's also a deterrent that they were out there uh, this week saying that if you think that, that you are on a, an encrypted app and that nobody is watching, that may belong to the FBI, that they have taken down many of these apps that criminals use and whatever else is out there, that they may have other things out there that you are BCCing the FBI every time you hit send. So there's a little bit of that deterrent to whether it be criminals like this or cyber hackers or, you know, the, the malware folks or terrorists of that the FBI has figured out a new way to play the game and that that app that, uh, that has been built, it may belong to the FBI. This also has a lot of big brother concerns as well. I mean, aren't there legal issues here in the United States about this? Well, there are, and that's why they got creative in that if it was something that was of concern uh, as it was leaving the U.S., the Australians would look at it, that the servers were outside of the U.S., that the FBI is saying it wasn't looking at any communication originating in the U.S., but under international treaty, that it could look at uh, communications coming uh, into the, the app from anywhere else in the world. So they were reviewing those. The Australians would look at anything that oops had left the U.S. and landed in their inbox and review it. If it was life-threatening, then they could let the FBI know that they had received intelligence uh, that they needed to know about. Otherwise, it would not go back to the FBI if it was uh, born in the U.S. By the way, they also got dirty cops out of this whole thing. Not U.S. Uh, police, but, but elsewhere in the world, uh, they say this. The platform was also used by corrupt law enforcement officials to communicate with transnational criminal organizations, pass sensitive information, and notify them of pending law enforcement action. These crimes resulted in the arrest of six law enforcement officers yesterday and a dozen of cases opened during the course of the investigation. Those police thought that they were communicating uh, just like the, the bad guys did uh, on a secure app that nobody was watching. And every time they hit send, those police officers had an email going into the, the FBI's inbox. Now, was the FBI working with people like Apple and, and Google, the, the platforms that these apps are on? Uh, no, they, they say that this was something that, that they were able to do working with an informant that had uh, had been trying to create another uh, encrypted program. So when they were taking down these other programs, these other platforms, then they were able to flip them and have them build the app for them, essentially. And th this is not, these were not on phones that you would get when you go into the AT&T store or the Verizon store. These are devices used by criminals that the only thing on the phone is the encrypted app. And they don't have Facebook on it. They don't have their email on it. They don't have, you know, any uh, the, uh, Apple Messenger on it. It is usually an Android phone that the only thing they use. So these were actually devices more than the app, devices that they were getting out there, but they were all linked back to the FBI, and the FBI was getting them out there globally. All right, ABC's Alex Stone, thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come. Civility in politics. I'm Brian Calvert with a Northwest man's quest to get back to basics without an agenda. When the Como Politica continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogula. Politics hit a fever pitch last year, leading to extreme stances, polarizing conversations, and much more. 
Doesn't seem to have gotten much better this year. But a Northwest man is eager to get back to the basics of why politicians exist in the first place. Como's Brian Calvert explains. If the political machine played this way all the way up at the top... I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. China ate your lunch, Joe. ...and was punctuated by a... Will you shut up, man? It's no surprise to anyone that politics became a battle of the extremes, all the way down to your neighborhood. On our neighborhood page, I'd seen a lot of issues with people stealing signs, mm-hmm. throwing paint on signs, um, holes thrown. a lot of bashing back yeah. and forth. While tones since last year have mellowed slightly, they remain anything but completely civil. So Washington resident Dave Rudd set out to be part of a change. I want to do something. Dave lives in the southeasternmost corner of Washington and is tired of messages getting lost in heated arguments. We have legislators and we have representatives that we work through. So I thought, hey, Maybe we should get people talking to legislators more. He had an idea. We need more input from the public. And yet, because of where we've been, the public may not be aware of the constructive ways to submit an idea or an ideal. Dave planned a get-together. I made some phone calls and started getting some of the representatives to say, okay, I'll, I'll show up. The idea? A master class, if you will, on communicating with your elected officials. It appeared to be a challenge even bigger than Dave could imagine. After all, all of the representatives in his neck of the woods are from one single party. The key, he says, was to remove agendas, bias, and party lines, and get back to the basics of simply communicating with your elected official. I think we won't be so divided if we become a larger group as Americans, not as this party or this consolidation. He acknowledges this means we won't always agree. He's not asking for that. And if this first event was any indication of how badly people just want to have a conversation, a second event is now planned. What does he call these gatherings? We the people. That's really where the power of this nation is, is the people. Brian Calvert, Como News. Still to come, a unanimous decision from the U.S. Supreme Court on immigration. Plus, some of the justices weigh in on women registering for the draft when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pozola. A unanimous Supreme Court ruling. Unusual. It's not often you see all nine justices agree on a single issue. Well, they handed down that ruling this week, and it had to do with immigration. The justices essentially saying that those who are here on temporary protected status are ineligible to apply for a green card or permanent citizenship. Joining me now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. And the first question, what exactly is the crux of this decision? The Supreme Court essentially said that there are really two ways to get into the United States. One's an emergency basis. There's a war back home or a natural disaster. That's a temporary program. The other kind is the green card program. That's lawful permanent residency. What the court said was that just because you got in based on an emergency, doesn't mean you really are entitled to go for the green card. You have to have been admitted legally because a family connection or a job tie, that's the only thing that can put you on a path to a green card. How unusual is it to have a unanimous ruling? Well, hugely unusual. As you suggested, it's kind of a head scratcher because you know, you've got three liberals on the court. You've got three conservatives. You've got the chief basically in the middle and then a couple more that are kind of hard to pigeonhole. But these days in this era of polarization, absolutely a unanimous decision on a contentious point like immigration is a real shocker. And does this have to do with the dreamers, those who are here under the DACA program, or is that separate? Yeah, that's a separate deal. Again, this really 
really is the, the fight between the folks who got in based on an emergency and the people who want to be here permanently. I think the court is essentially saying just because we let you in for a brief time because there was a war in your home country doesn't mean that you got in legally and are on a track to permanent admission via the green card. So they're just going to have to go back uh, and start over uh, in, in connection with the green card program. When you say start over, what do you mean? Leave the country and come back? Exactly right. They'd have to leave. They'd have to then say, I have a connection with an employer or I've got a family reunification deal. Once they get into the country legally on those two grounds, then they're eligible to say, hey, give me a green card. And then we had another ruling handed down as well. This had to do with the male-only military draft. What happened there? Well, the United States for many, many years has required every male when they reach 18 to register with the Selective Service, even though there's no, obviously, there's no active draft. We haven't had a draft since Vietnam. Now, women have not had to do this. And in the 80s, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, women do not have to register. Well, in the 90s, women started getting uh, service in combat roles, and some people want women to have to register with the Selective Service. And a lawsuit asked for that result. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, sorry, no, we are not going to take this case up. But Justice Sotomayor, uh, in a statement, said the idea sounds good, but we want Congress to sink their teeth into it first. Once they evaluate the idea, then the court might welcome a lawsuit. That almost sounds like the court saying we're not going to make the law. That's up to the legislative branch. Exactly right. And of course, some people think that that's a very good idea to make sure there's a bright line between the courts and the legislature. But the bottom line is that it sounds like a few, but not a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court justices are receptive to the idea of ending gender-based registration for the draft but not today, perhaps in a year or two. All right, ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks, thank you so much. You bet. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. For more, check out our other shows such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and for health, wellness, and more, take a listen to The Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.